Hey, good evening, everybody. Let's go ahead and uh, try to get started. We are very excited. First of all, thank you for showing up. This is a great turnout. We're, I, I told Seth you're here for the tacos. Not here. Anyway, um, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is Seth Trout. Uh, Seth has been uh, a part of our faith community for probably eight years now. Eight years, yeah. Eight years. Uh, he started with us uh, as an associate at uh, Redemption Gateway and is now really uh, your co sort of the co-lead teaching pastor at what is now Ironwood Church, which is the church formerly known as Redemption Gateway. That is true, So yeah. with Luke Simmons, our friend Luke Simmons, and uh, we're glad that he's here. He recently got his PhD in the stuff he's going to be talking about tonight. Um, but I have one interesting fact... And she left the room, too bad. I have one interesting fact about Seth. His high school health teacher is actually in the house tonight. Nikki? <laughs> so she's back there now taking her kids to childcare. Anyway, so uh, that's a little serendipity for you. And um, anyway, so I'm going to turn it over to Seth as soon as I pray. But uh, when, when I'm done praying, would you please welcome Seth uh, for being here? Father God, I pray tonight uh, that you would just uh, quiet our hearts and open our uh, ears and eyes to everything that um, we're going to be uh, given tonight. Uh, we thank you for the diligent study of Seth in, in, in this area, and we just pray that we're going to be able to take this and uh, apply it in our homes in a way that um, is a blessing not only to us, but also is a blessing to you, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome, Seth. All right. Thanks, Frank. So the way this is probably going to work is I'm going to lecture for about 35 minutes, and then we'll have about a three-minute break, five-minute break to talk about things uh, at your table, and then I'll do a Q&A after that. So as you have questions, you can write them down or take inventory or at least mark them down, and we'll, we'll get there at the end. Uh, so I started my uh, doctorate program in about 2018, did my coursework, and then in early 2020, I had to pick my dissertation topic. And right in the month when I had to pick the dissertation topic was when uh, online church and Zoom things started happening from COVID. And around that same time, I just noticed this trend of this rapidly increasing dialogue about mental health issues in Gen Z and was reading statistics about how Gen Zers were like 39% in California identifying as some form of LGBTQ and which was rapidly higher than any other age cohort in the past. And so I was just thinking, I'm gonna to try to do an analysis of the rise of digital technology and how that affects our sense of connection to our bodies, right? If, if we're growing up FaceTiming rather than letter writing, how does it affect our psychologies, our sense of self? How does it play out? And I was particularly of interest because when I was a senior in high school, there was one kid in my school who had an iPhone 3G, and it was this European kind of nerdy kid, and so nobody took it seriously. It was like, he was like the, the fringe early adopter. It was, it was not normal. Nobody was uh, texting pictures. There's like selfie culture was barely even a thing. And so I felt somewhat burdened for, man, what if I had to have the whole internet, and if all my peers had to have the whole internet in their pocket through pubescence, what would that do to your sexuality, to your uh, view of comparison of others, to your view of being somewhere versus being somewhere else. 
like you used to be able to like go home and then your friends were not at home and you used to be able to go to school and your parents were not at school but then all of a sudden because of technology your friends are everywhere your parents are everywhere there's like these, the, even the idea of space was changing and how to be somewhere versus being somewhere else and you're constantly being interrupted and so I felt burdened for the people who had to go through high school uh, literally six to seven years behind me and had a lot of questions about uh, what does the Bible say about uh, the body and space and location and what does it mean that we are digitizing ourselves uh, and how does that affect us? I think generally speaking people think bad uh, it, but then generally speaking people don't do anything about it. So what we're going to talk about is how we got here, what it means for us especially as a church and then I'm going to give a handful of best practices or recommendations uh, to resist some of this stuff. So a prophetic cultural uh, influence, Lady Gaga, in 2013, her album Art Pop said, you can't have my heart, you won't use my mind, but do what you want with my body, do what you want with my body. And this demonstrates really two things. One is this view of the separation of the heart and mind from the body, and a prioritization of the heart and mind as precious, and the body as inconsequential or not precious, right? Do what you want to my body, but you can't have my heart. And this is part of the dilemma that I think you see in both like a hypersexualized and digitized culture is bodies mean nothing, but hearts mean something, right? And Christians reinforce this through some of like our, our bad eschatology or bad teaching, right? Like God just cares about your heart, uh, or just your soul goes to heaven and some of these uh, unhealthy implications or, or false extrapolations. But you see how in a culture where historically, if your body and your mind were out of sync, the assumed answer was, we need to get you into therapy to bring your mind into alignment with your body. And now we've switched that. And now let's see if your mind and body are out of sync, we need to... Uh, medically intervene to bring your body into alignment with your mind. And so I was confused. How did that switch happen, right? Because lining your mind up with your body used to be called therapy. Now it's called conversion therapy. And lining your body up with your mind used to be called uh, uh, crazy. Uh, but now, <laughs> now it's called affirmative care, right? And so how do those things get swapped. And so um, Lady Gaga, the Born This Way leader, movement person, like she has a pretty good handle on this. And so uh, I also just liked being able to quote Lady Gaga on page one of my dissertation. So uh, Renee Day, this I think a lot of this goes back to Renee Descartes, who when asking the question of what does it mean to be a person, how do I know that I exist? How do I know that I'm actually here? Uh, the famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. For him, what made a person a person was cognition or thought, not their bodies, uh, not their presence, not their image of godness, but their cognition. And so again, you see the prioritization of the mind and thinking over the body. What is most real are my thoughts. What is less real is my Body. So that's 400 years prior to Lady Gaga. But the difference between 400 years ago and now, uh, what I'm going to build towards is this reality that that was just a theory 400 years ago. Nobody could actually live that way, right? You've, 
you had to go on treating your body like it was the main thing because there was no actual means of making your mind the real thing. Uh, then what you have happened, so in Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is really good, he writes this, as soon as the mind or the will was recognized as separable from the body or a separate constitutive element of the person, psychological man became a very real conceptual possibility. And so from Descartes through Freud and through the Romantics and Rousseau, what you have is this internalization of the self that rather than the self being located in a body and in a community, the self was an emotive thinking thing that was separate from the body and the church's influence was pushed away, which with it was pushed away the, the institutions that form us like the family. Those things are just... Uh, pushed upon us by religion and so instead what ends up happening is the man turns inward I'm psychologized my sense of what it means to be a self is my thoughts and my feelings so it's a step further than Descartes it's not just my thoughts but now it's my thoughts and my feelings and my reactions this is also symptomatic of um, evolutionary uh, psychology where all of the thoughts and feelings we have are oriented towards a survival so that we lose the concept of sin and we orient towards a concept of survival. Everything is interpreted as survival instinct. And so some of like the over-traumatization we see, like I think you have the fundamentalist churches that deny trauma um, and want to uh, miss out on the human person and the body. But now the concept creep of trauma, everything's trauma, everything's survival instinct. There's no such thing as sin. And you have this... A psychologized internal sense of self. Then what leads us to is the rise of um, power dynamics in queer theories and the problematization of the self. So I'm going to read a word salad here from Judith Butler in her book, Bodies That Matter, 1996. Uh, the va- they vanquish, that is us Christians probably, they vanquish bodies that matter. There is a regime, so this is power language, of heterosexuality that operates to contour the materiality, so you see the quotes are calling into question even the idea of materiality, of sex. And that materiality is formed and sustained through and as a materialization of regulatory norms. That's more power language. There are, that are in part those of the heterosexual hegemony. Hegemony is like the regulated form of discourse. So you have power language and regime, regime power language and norms, regulatory norms, power language and hegemony. And what she's getting at here through this work is that the idea that bodies are authoritative materialization is just a power dynamics thing, therefore it's wrong. This is just hangover from the Roman Catholic Church, this belief that bodies tell you the truth. That's just one way the Catholic Church controlled people. That's just power. And so then you have all the discourse around gender and bodies being problematized through kind of a neo-Marxist Everything is reduced to power. There's no longer any discussion about biology. There's just materiality as a construct of the hegemony that the hangovers from Roman Catholic Church are just trying to oppress our sexuality. So then you have this psychologized self and this problematization of the body. And that leads to the more recent thing with electronic technology, the uploadable self. And this began with radio, which used to be considered technology, now it's considered ancient history, um, but the uploadable self. So Marshall McLuhan, a Catholic theologian writing in the 70s, said this, when you are on the air, so this is Marshall McLuhan wrote a book arguing against radio preaching, which sounds hilarious, but um, (laughs) when you're on the air, you are in a way everywhere at once. 
When you are on the telephone, you have no body. And while your voice is there, you and the people you speak to are here at the same time. Electric man has no bodily being. He's literally discarnate. He goes on to say, and conservative theologians have not taken this seriously enough and what this will mean for the future. And so his point being that for most of human history, if you wanted to speak with someone, you either had to be with them in the room or you had to physically write something down. And that physically writing something down, that thing had to travel through space and time to arrive at someone. But now through radio and telephone, all of a sudden what you're having is this dislocation, a separation from the person from a location. Now I can be on the phone and I can be in my grandma's house in Pine Tap with her on the phone. And so all of a sudden for the first time, you have this despatialized capacity for communication. And so you're in a way nowhere and in a way everywhere. And so the idea of being a located fixed person becomes more complicated. This beyond electronic communication like phone and radio, now you have this idea that you can put your mind on a chip and upload it. And so what I think is happening with digital technology is we're seeing a form of actualized Cartesianism. I think therefore I am and my thoughts can be put on a microchip, my thoughts can be put on the internet, my thoughts can manifest an avatar, my thoughts can outlive me. Um, and so because cognition can be digitized and uploaded, therefore identity comes preeminently from the mind, not the body. Therefore, if the mind and body are out of sync, then we manipulate the body using technology to match the mind. And so the plausibility structures that get people to actually think you're not your body, your body is just this sagging, aging, bleeding, oozing container of the real you, which is that clean, clear thing that you can put on a microchip and bring into eternal existence. Like there's a lot of shows like Altered Carbon on Netflix and um, Upload, is one on Amazon Prime, that are kind of doing this hypothesizing of a future that the real you is what you can put on a microchip and you could take your microchip out of a male body and stick it into a female carbon uh, robot thing and so the real you is your your thoughts your memories on a microchip and so this leads to uh, what I think is a form of just recycled Platonism so the Platonists had a phrase a saying uh, soma sema which is a Greek kind of pun play on words the body soma is a tomb sema body is a tomb that your body is just here interfering with the real you. The real you is being held back by your body. Your body's not you, your thoughts are you. And once we just escape these fleshly tombs through putting them on a microchip, we can begin to be who God wants us to be. The gods want us to be, not the real God. So Nancy, in her book, Love Thy Body, said this, people are metaphysically lost when they live according to non-biblical worldviews. And so, when we take seriously the plausibility structures of digital technology in our lives, I think we don't take seriously enough the way they might lead us to have not just like uh, unhealthy exposure to pornography, not just uh, the capacity to like be jealous of other people's lives, not just the capacity to uh, put give a strain on our mental health and anxiety, but they actually can lead us to have a bad view of what it means to be a human made in God's image. 
that I can begin to buy into this, I'm just my thoughts, I'm not my body, my body's just a tomb type thing. And so what this means for us is we're one, we're dislocated. Our capacity to be present in a moment with people is lower than it ever has been. Because at any moment, at any flash, I can be interrupted by someone in China who's showing me, look at this mouse that crawled across my room. And so <laughs> we are the most, we're so interrupted and it's across the globe. The most interesting thing in the world is happening somewhere in the world and it's almost never where you are because rarely will you be involved in the most interesting thing happening in the world, but there's always a, the most interesting thing happening in the world somewhere in the world and you can find out about it all the time right now. And you're here stuck listening to boring me. Have you checked your phones? What are you missing out on? Like that's, we're, we're so unable to be present and our nervous systems aren't conditioned to being present because we're so used to quick a dopamine hit. I forgot, like, and we say, oh, I'm just gonna take notes on the talk and then, whoops, I'm on Amazon shopping for Valentine's gifts, you know? And so, so it just, the, the black hole of being taken out of your place is stronger than it ever has been. Uh, so we're kind of everywhere and we're kind of nowhere. We're displaced, we're dislocated. Uh, we're distimed, our sense of time is thrown off. Uh, again, for most of human history, if you wanted to communicate with someone, you had to be in the room or you had to have this time-bound thing traveling through space. I want to speak to someone in New York, I'm going to write something down, and the courier will take it to New York, and I'll hear back in three, four weeks. Like that's, That was a normal thing until electronic technology through the little 0101 thing, forget what that's called, uh, radio, uh, Morse code, there you go, sir. And uh, our, our sense of immediacy, uh, that time and space are located together, right? How long does it take me to get there is a normal question. Whereas the digital technology, you're like, should I go there? No, I'll just FaceTime. Should I go, should I speak to them? No, I'll just call. And so our capacity to, to pack our lives full of infinite relationships um, because of time makes us less timely. We, our sense of time is different. We're disgendered because our mind tells us our gender, no longer our bodies. Um, one of the lines it's important, I think, for parents to regularly say is your body tells you the truth about you. And people who tell you otherwise are gaslighting you. Like, like your body tells you the truth about you. Right? If you want to know your gender, you look in your pants, not in your hearts. That's how it works. And so we are, dis, we are disgendered. Um, and we're overstimulated. Dopamine, serotonin hits all the time. Uh, the capacity to be perpetually entertained, like right, Neil Postman wrote his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death in 1980, and he was just talking about uh, network television and politics. He could not even imagine Netflix um, or TikTok reels, right? The, the, the mind in a blender uh, situation. And so uh, our capacity to be bored is really correlated with our capacity to be creative and to think deep thoughts. And we're the least able to be bored we've ever been as a society. And we're so overstimulated. Like, I have a car that is so old, you have to put a DVD player into it to play a movie. And my why are you putting it to be in the car? And I explained to him how, like, there's, like, just one movie? Like, our TV, you just say, hey, Siri, play 
anything I want, and it just goes. Like this idea that you put something on a disc, like he's looking at me like I'm a Neanderthal, and this was like DVD disc, right? So uh, we're way overstimulated. Even like the idea of listening to music, getting an album, like things that used to, like a long time ago, you had to have a musician in the room. Then there was the recording device, and now there's, hey Siri, play Metallica, and it just happens. You know what I mean? Uh, so we're overstimulated. Uh, we're uncovered. Uh, the generation that has an average age of exposure to pornography at, at eight, um, and then the percentage of high school students who send each other naked pictures of each other, which is pornography creation. You can talk to your kids about that. You're a pornographer. That's not sexting. You're making pornography. Um, you, you, you have child pornography on your phone. There's a way of talking about this, the sexting stuff. Uh, it's so relatively normal that all the influencers you follow, uh, it's the lack of general instinct towards any form of modesty, the percentage of people who pivot to being uh, OnlyFans pornography influencers is really high. So the general sense of modesty is really low. It's considered normal and typical. Um, and we're covering the wrong things and in the wrong places. And here's what I mean by that is instead of speaking with parents, uh, kids will go into their room and tell their friends. So there's, uh, there's an immodesty that's an emotional immodesty, not just a physical immodesty. I'll text all my friends about all my problems and over-disclose to inappropriate, foolish people, and then I'll under-disclose to my parents. And so um, not only that, but I'll send kids in my class pictures of my genitalia, but I won't tell my mom how my day was at school. And so the appropriate versus inappropriate disclosure uh, framework is just way off and so we're uncovered uh, we're insecure so so much social emotional development happens through the experience of feeling awkward in the room and working through it uh, say misspeaking correcting yourself your your nervous system feeling someone else's nervous system when you say something mean and you have to deal with that uh, whereas when you are uh, given an iPad at dinner from the ages of four to 17, you never learn to listen and participate in conversation. You never learn to feel the feeling of not having something to say and feeling awkward. You never learn the feeling of jumping in and missing the moment and having to work through that. And so your nervous system is literally just not adapted to human interaction. It's adapted to serotonin and dopamine hits on a, on a regular basis from your phone. And so Insecurity is more of a, a bodily nervous system thing than it is like a cognitive, emotional, thing, uh, emotional, cognitive, rational thing. And so you're socially delayed by being raised on digital technology. And so it's the capacity to look someone in the eye and say, hey, that hurt my feelings, or to look someone in the eye and say, hey, why are you doing that? And so, like pe people don't have the capacity for conflict. So many Gen Zers now the statistics, they're, they're afraid of ordering in restaurants. They'd rather Uber Eats it um, because they don't have to tell someone, I want this. Because the feeling of sharing a desire is scary. Uh, and desires are part of what's most vulnerable to us, even basic ones. I want cheese, I don't want cheese. Uh, there's a fear of being judged. Um, and what happens is when your socialization and communication is developed through texting and Instagram, you can live and edit. I think we're all right. Should be all right. 
you know, point this the wrong way. So uh, you, you're living edited. So if I'm texting someone, I can type out that text. If it's not just right, I can change that word. I can read, I can undo that. I can say, what do you think about this uh, text I'm going to send to my friend because she wore purple on the day we were blue? You know, and you can, you can test and edit and do the live editing thing. And then you're going to post a picture and you can take 17 versions. And then whereas even before it's like you take one with the film, it's the end. You know, and you, the, so the sense of the pressure to be perfect was lower because you had to speak and work through it. And you had to take one picture and there it is. But now there's the pressure to be perfect is higher because you spend your whole life living edited in your communication. And then you sit down at dinner with people and you can't live edited. You have to like burp and wipe your face and interact. And it's really terrifying if you've never done it before. And so we're insecure and we're fragmented because we have these different selves we curate and we have to perform them all the time, right? So especially through adolescence, it's really normal to act one way with your friends and then act another way with your parents. But that was reflected in having two gear changes, a gear change in the morning when you leave home and then go to school, and then a gear change when you leave school and go home. And that's a healthy, appropriate part of individuation is you have to learn who you are apart from your parents. But now the gear changes happen 40 times a day at all times because you have you communicate like this on Snap and you communicate like this on TikTok and you communicate like this in that class and the whole time your parents are there and you're having to act like this here and then act like this here and your friends are everywhere, your peers are everywhere and you have all these different uh, social codes of how to interact in these various cultural spaces that are digitized and with you at all times and so your sense of self, instead of having kind of myself with my friends and myself with my parents, now I have 14 selves all of which are a sliver of me and a sliver of not me, and I have to kind of keep it up all the time. So I'm fragmented, and I'm uh, having a hard time. So there's the negatives. Anybody ready to um, burn their phone yet? So, All right, so in contrast, this is different than the biblical vision, which is a vision of human wholeness. If you think about the phrase integrity, it's integration. It's... I am me. My whole me is myself, my body, my mind. So Abraham Kuyper said this, the spirit of a person cannot be separated from the person's physical existence and a person's physical existence can likewise not be separated from the rest of nature. Like we are whole people that any bifurcation of separation uh, doesn't work. Herman Bobbing said this, the body is not a prison but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty just as constitutive for the essence of humanity as the soul. A, a good dose of biblical body positivity is needed in kind of a shamey uh, culture. And these are very conservative dudes speaking this positively about the body. The body is presented in Scripture as honorable, glorious, and physical. You have crowned him, that is mankind, with glory and honor. I think conservative evangelicals have too low a view of Humanity. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. So those honorable, crowned with glory and honor, glorious, this is enthronement language, dominion, king language, works of hands, things under his feet, it's physical, it's physical presence. When God told Adam and Eve to subdue and have dominion over, the, that was a physical unfolding of creation that was meant to happen. And so we are our bodies to be made in God's images to have a body. It's not a disembodied, uh, soul-centric 
uh, view of the person. Uh, we're responsible, creative, and physical. God said, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. You cannot do that without bodies. Um, this is an, a side note. I have a good friend who, uh, she was married to a woman, and she told me, uh, hey, we're going to start trying to have kids. And so we have a pretty solid relationship. We've been friends for like three years. And I said, okay, which one of you is going to start having sex with men? I was like, what? Male, female. You want to, like, you need two bodies, two types of bodies. You know, who's the father? It's like, oh, sperm donor, things like that. And I'm like, okay, but someone's got to get a sperm from somewhere. I don't know if, you know, I took high school health class. I know how this works, you know, which, how's it going to go? So anyway, she has a kid now, um, and she's married to a dude. So uh, male people created them. Be fruitful and multiply. You need bodies. You need a certain kind of body, a certain kind of body put together, fill in the earth and subdue it. That's culture making. Have dominion. Responsible, creative, physical. To be human is a great task. Limited and located. We tend to conceive of our limits as a curse, of our limits as annoying and as frustrating. Uh, that must be Genesis 3 stuff being limited, but it's actually Genesis 1 and 2 stuff, our limits. So Abraham this, he said, Our physical life does not maintain itself spontaneously, but lasts only by continually taking in nourishment. Our body continually digests, and that loss must be compensated for by the steady intake of new nourishment. This is true not only now as a result of sin, but was also true in paradise. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Uh, that our limits are by God's design. So if you think, digital technology is tempting us to be omnipresent, that is an incommunicable attribute of God and is idolatry to want to be omnipresent. If digital technology is tempting us to be omniscient, to know all things, that is an incommunicable attribute of God and it is idolatry to want to be omniscient. And digital technology comes and says, you can be everywhere and you can know everything. And part of our walking faithfully is embracing the creational limits we've been given Embracing our limits as good and not trying to resist them through some type of digital technology. Um, even after sin, Jesus Christ took on flesh and humanity was still very good in their fleshly uh, bodies. Humans are the image of God even after they corporately and individually rebel. So here's some best practices. I got all of these are alliterations, at least phonetically. So you're welcome for that. So um, bodily... Bodily blessing, uh, teaching kids and ourselves to be thankful for our bodies. Rather, we talk about our bodies when something's going wrong. My hip hurts, my ankle hurts, I have a headache. Do we talk about our bodies with a lens of gratitude when nothing's going wrong? Like thankful. You know, so putting my son down to bed at night, thank you, Lord, for Jay's hands. May he do good with them. Thank you, Lord, for Jay's feet. May he take him great places. Thank you, Lord, for Jay's head. May he see people with his eyes. And when I'm feeling funny, I thank the Lord for Jay's butt, and he laughs because he's a four-year-old boy, you know. <laughs> but if he didn't have a butt, he would die pretty quick, right? That's, that's pretty septic, right? That's... <laughs> right? We need to bless our bodies. We need to... These are well-designed machines that are in the image of God. We need to bless the Lord for it. Um, 
there's a book written by a journalist called The Body Guide. And I bought it in an airport. It's by this non-Christian journalist. And it's like a whole chapter on how magnificent cartilage is and how if they could get ice as slippery as cartilage, all hockey players would die because of how fast they would skate. And it's a pretty good book. Our bodies are remarkable. So uh, body positivity gets a bad rap because it's generally like code for like um, unproblematic acceptance of unhealthy things. But whatever the biblical holy version of body positivity is, like God loves your body, uh, God loves my body, your body is good. We should bless and thank the Lord for our bodies and be grateful for them. Um, honoring our health, right? Uh, the body is a temple. And I think it should be a goal for everybody to be able to play on the ground with their great-grandkids. Few people will ever achieve that goal for thousands of reasons. But why not make that a goal? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, my grandma's 92, and she can have a four-year-old son up like this. And it kind of makes me nauseous because I'm like, she's going to snap. But she, but she, that's part of her goal is present. My other grandma could not do that, you know. And so the sense of loss is real. And so she's um, able to do that. Um, pursuit of health can be super weird, especially with Instagram culture now. Now it's like health is correlated with like a, a picture-worthy body, which I think that's evil for other reasons. You know, cardiovascular, metabolic health, um, as our technology makes our jobs more and more uh, non-mobile, we sh- you have to be intentional to get mobile. Uh, on our health, uh, physical fellowship, we get a question all the time, like, can you attend church online? The answer is no, you cannot attend church online. You can watch other people attend church online. Which, which is better than nothing, right? If you're homebound, like, that's really, really hard for a lot of reasons. Um, if you're going through chemotherapy and your doctor says, if you catch a cold, you will die, that's really, really hard. So being able to watch online is great, but it's certainly not as good. And so prioritizing physical fellowship, podcasts, YouTube videos, live streams, don't, like part of the commands in scripture is sing to one another, address one another's songs in spiritual songs. You're not singing to one another if you're at home in your PJs um, watching on YouTube. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss, which I think in modern terms is like a fist bump or a side hug. I don't know what it is, but it's, there's, there's meant to be warmth, hospitality that marks the fellowship and the assembly that in a world where people can't be present, the minimum we could do is be present at the Lord's table together as a commitment. Um, part of the I don't know, it's church's like size or location, but people will come to church once a month and say, I'm a part of that church. And that feels new in world history. Like, I think for a while, like, the average really committed church attender was there like 3.5 times a month. You know, if I'm sick or out of town, I'm not there. But other than that, I'm there. And so prioritizing physical fellowship is radically countercultural to a world that says you can be omniscient and omnipresent and you can get everything you need from chat GPT in a YouTube video. Uh, 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 The proximity principle. So if you think about it like this, Every person has these three circles, right? There's a circle of control, circle of influence, and circle of concern. With the rise of digital technology, everyone's circle of concern is infinitely larger than everyone else's was even 100 years ago. The amount of things you could worry about, think about, consider. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan meets us and confronts us 
and some of our over-responsibility, right? So the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, there's a guy who gets beat up and then two guys walk right past him and the Good Samaritan comes and helps. And what makes those two first people uh, so condemned is that they were right there with the ability to help and they didn't. And so what you get is proximity and ability are the determinant factors for responsibility. And in a world where teenagers are like, did you know what's happening in Palestine? And we can say like proximity, ability, don't worry about it. You know, you can do whatever you want protesting what Netanyahu's doing. I guarantee you, he doesn't care. You know, like you have no ability or proximity. So what if we focused on loving our neighbors and the parable that Jesus taught us to love our neighbors gave us two factors, the ability to help and the proximity to the suffering. So get local in your emphasis and sense of responsibility. Is some of what creates the mental health crisis with anxiety and depression is over-responsibility for all of the pain in the world everywhere. Uh, you know, in 2012, it's Kony 2012, then it's Ukraine, then it's Palestine, then it's China, it's Uyghur. It, and there's a thousand very serious problems in the whole world. And only until digital technology did you have the ability to even know about them all at the same time. And you can say, we can pray, and I'm like, sure, you can do that. But also, the mental health over-responsibility of the weight of the people in our lives that don't have a prefrontal cortex is not good. So... Proximity principle, I hope, gives some freedom to say, do what you can where you are. And so if the more means you have, you know, if you're a billionaire, then your ability is different than if you have five bucks, right? So like Elon Musk's responsibility is different than mine because I don't, I have five bucks. So uh, the practice of digital detox and intentional ignorance are my attempt to apply the historic Christian discipline of fasting to the 21st century digital detox if you read anybody who like does sleep hygiene stuff they're like you got to have your screens out of your face for an hour before bed if you want to have high quality REM sleep so you begin to detox you to land not crash into your pillow and that involves putting your phone to bed you have to parent your phone you put it to bed and when it says, I don't want to go to bed yet, you say, too bad, I'm the parent. You know, you go to bed. <laughs> and so you, you put your phone to bed. Um, I think in the morning, as a spiritual discipline, uh, it's best to not look at your phone for a minimum the first 15 minutes of the day, which will feel like absolute excruciating torture and death if you've been giving yourself dopamine hits the first thing in the morning for a long time. So you've got to do that. I think it's also really important to prioritize and normalize leaving your phone at home for date nights. You know, back in the good old days, like five minutes ago in world history, you'd tell the babysitter, we'll be at blank restaurant. Call them if there's an emergency. There's never an emergency. And then they don't call the restaurant. But if there is, you're at the restaurant, you can't do anything anyway. So leave your phone at home for date night. Uh, Leave your phone at home for date night. I think it's really good to practice like a digital Sabbath. We get to find a time for 12 to 18 hours that you go for walks without your phone, without music, without podcasts, feel your feelings, think your thoughts, talk to your people. Uh, It's good to at least once a year do a three to five day total digital detox. I do this on vacation every year. I turn my phone off and I put it in a drawer 
and I'm at the beach, and if people die, they die, and I'll find out about it. Funerals don't happen in three days turnaround anyway, so it will be okay. So I am not God, therefore the world goes on without me when I turn my phone off. I am not omnipotent, and so I pastor in a large church, and guess what? Everyone's fine when I turn my phone back on, or at least mostly fine. So digital detox, finding a way to strategically and uh, structurally detox on a daily, weekly, monthly, annually basis is important for our mental health. The next one's intentional ignorance. Uh, This is repentance of omniscience, desire for omniscience, omniscience. Did you guys hear this morning about what Putin said about North Korea? Now you want to find out, right? Well, (laughs) the practice of intentional ignorance is just deciding, I'm not going to learn about that. I'm going to be okay with not knowing that information. Did you know the difference between a WNBA ball and an NBA ball? How many... What if you just never found out about that? (laughs) You could chat GPT it or Google it right now, but you're going to practice intentional ignorance and just not know about that. And so one of the things I do is at least once a day, I try to like have my curiosity peaked and then just let it go. Because I'm not omniscient. I don't want to be omniscient. Only God has the capacity to carry all the information from the world. And I don't want to try to do that. So I'm going to try to stay in my lane. I don't, I don't check Instagram. I don't have an Instagram. So I don't check my Instagram because I don't have one. But I don't, I don't check Facebook stories because I don't want to know about what happened in your life the last 24 hours. That's not important to me. It doesn't affect my life. I don't know why you want me to know that. And so I'm not checking that. And so if something's important, you'll call me or text me or I'll find out about it from someone. But I don't want to know what you ate for lunch. I don't want to know what your kid looks like at the recital. I wasn't invited. So I don't. (laughs) Intentional ignorance. And the last one is probably the most important. And this is rhythm regulation that talks about like putting your phone to bed. But I think if everyone took an hour and relentlessly customized their phone notifications, uh, they'd be well served. You know, iPhones have like do not disturb work and personal. And if you really gave good thought to who do I want to be able to interrupt my life at any moment? Like never in world history before was it normal that some random person could be like, hey, how's it going? You're like, I was reading a book to my kid and you now just think you can ping me with like a picture of the uh, the brisket you just smoked you know like I don't want to know like why why am I making myself interruptible Uh, so I need to be present to the people that God has placed most close to me I want to obey the proximity principle and and be there and this especially includes uh, for parents need to be the rhythm regulators for their kids Uh, you I think that giving a kid an iPhone or a tablet or a smartphone um, is like giving them a bottle of tequila uh, why would you do that? Uh, and if you're going to do that, you know, there's some education required. It's, 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 you're going to, if you said, I trust you to drink until you're done, like, we, there's no, like, the, so what it's good to tell high schoolers, middle schoolers, whatever, is uh, it's not that I don't trust you, it's that I trust Silicon Valley to colonize your attention so they can get every dollar they can. 
I trust them to do that. That's what for-profit companies do, is in an attention-based economy, the colonization of your mind is the final frontier, and they will try to do that. And so that's their job, to sell ads, and the longer your eyes are on this, the more ads they sell, and this is not about my trust for you, it's that billions and billions of market research is being done to keep you looking at this. The data says it's bad for your mental health, and so because I care about you, the phone goes to bed at 7.30, or whatever it is. So um, it's important to know that I've made zero mistakes parenting teenagers, so I'm still idealistic. My kids are <laughs> So I wrote a book about this. It's my dissertation, Digitization and Neodocetism. Uh, Neodocetism, so that's the title of my dissertation. I'm sorry it's titled that. Um, uh, but on the King Culture podcast that I do, there's like five or six episodes about more of this. I tend to post about this stuff on X, or for those of you who aren't up to date, I tend to tweet about these things on Twitter. And at that, kind of implications on digital technology, body, stuff like that. So you can Sorry about that. So going back to the best practice, I think it's the most important part. I think everyone in this room should have a plan for five, six, and seven that you are running, right? What's your plan for digital detox? What's your plan for intentional ignorance? What's your plan for rhythm regulation? If you don't have one, I think you need to make one. I think you need to be in sync with it on the people in your household. And I think the best thing parents can do with their kids is to say things like this. I don't like who I am when I get locked into scrolling on Instagram reels. I'm a less present dad, and that's not fair to you. So I plug my phone in over here so that I can be a loving present dad. I don't, can't handle it. The, the uh, slot machine effect is too great. Uh, the products are too good, and so I have to create distance between me and my phone. Uh, modeling our limits and our need for uh, boundaries is good. Right? Then the next phase, parents can say, is I don't like the way we are when we are all on our phones. So we, including mom and dad, are going to put our phones over here so that we can be present to each other. Right, so finding a way that's not patronizing and judgmental and you Gen Zers and blah blah blah, but that's implicating the parents in it. So it's because if I ask the people in this room, how many of you are proud of your cell phone use habit? Most people would be like, well, yeah, probably not. And so we first need to become model users who are lead uh, repenters of our unhealthy device use. So here's what I do now: is you can turn to the people next to you and say, what was most significant? What questions do you have? So what was interesting or confusing or what questions do you have? And we're gonna do that for seven minutes and then we'll take questions, all right?